And if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. Our second to last sermon in Luke. Uh, if you're reading out of your pew Bibles this morning, we're on page 885. But we're in Luke, chapter 24, verses 47 to 49. Though, for the sake of context this morning, I want to start just a little bit earlier. Um, Back in verse 44. Uh, so let's begin in Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 44 for our reading. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. May God bless this, the reading of his word. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for all that you are. Lord, what a joy it is to be gathered as your people, to find our respite in your word, to find our fellowship amongst your people, to find our rest in your truth, in your promises, in your graces, and in your mercies. Lord, as we come to the preaching of your word, we ask that you would Pour out your Holy Spirit upon this place, that you would commandeer our hearts, our minds, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see, that we might find greater joy in your words, in your truth, in your gospel. And Lord, we ask that you would hide your servant behind the cross as you pour out your Holy Spirit upon this place. We ask that all praise, all honor, all glory would be rendered to you and you alone, and none would be given to your servant, for Lord, you alone are worthy of our praise. We ask that you would speak to our hearts today. These things we pray in the name of your Son, our beloved Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. One of my favorite poems of all time is a piece by Paul Genega called The Courier. Our homeschooling moms can write that down, right? Paul Genega's The Courier. It was written in honor of a man named Jan Karski, the Polish courier who was sent from the Warsaw Ghetto in World War II to tell the world the reality, the news of the Holocaust. He was the first person to bring this information to the world, what had been done in secret behind the fog of war. And in the poem, it says, I am carrying the sea in my cupped hands, not drops, not leaders, the whole dark sloshing sea. Because Paul Genega imagines for Jan what it must have been to try to carry this incredible weight 
It conveys the immensity of the message which the world needed to hear. And today we look at a message conveyed that is more immense, that is indeed more important for the world to hear, conveyed by simple messengers. But it's not a message of sorrow and sin. It's a message of sin and sorrow undone by the cross. And we want to deal with our text this morning over the course of just three points. The first is that of the necessary proclamation. The second is the true witnesses. And the third is the Father's promise. And we'll be progressing through that outline, which is provided for you in your bulletin, as well as the verse list there as well. But we start out with necessary proclamation. Now, strange as it is, we are picking up in the middle of a sentence from Jesus to his disciples that starts back in Luke 24, 46. It's really a thought that started back in verse 44. And he's told them that it is necessary for the fulfillment of Scripture that Christ should suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and that all the repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, starting with Jerusalem. And in our last sermon, we dealt with the first leg of that, of verse 47, the necessity of Christ dying for sinners, the necessity of repentance for the forgiveness of sins being provided by Christ's suffering, by Christ's sacrifice. So today we want to look at how it is that it is necessary that it goes out to all nations, starting with Jerusalem. Now, each of these pieces is chock full of meaning. Just this term, the Christ, is something that entire books have been written on. This is the Messiah, the anointed, the God-man, Son of God in flesh, long promised. He came to suffer for the sins of God's people and rose from the dead. Because of Christ, there is repentance unto forgiveness for sins. Jesus is essentially nutshelling the gospel here, right? If sinners repent in faith in Jesus Christ, they will be forgiven. It's the best news. It is the good news. It is the gospel. And now we want to look at the extent of that proclamation in his name and how it is tied to their being witnesses. It's going to start in Jerusalem. That's the original epicenter of Christianity. Uh, we were talking recently in our symbolics class about how if you were to look at um, where the kingdom of God existed at different points in history, in, in terms of a, a globe, it would be drastically different at different ages. Because if you go back to 2000 BC, all of the lights of God's people, right? All of the light of the world, all of the light of the gospel is in this little tiny strip of land in the Middle East. But starting now, right? As Christ gives this command, the word will spread out and out and out and out to the ends of the earth. But it's going to start there in Jerusalem. The disciples were to begin with their own people, and their own place, their families, their neighbors and friends. In the same way, we are called to bear witness to the gospel, 
to its work in our lives, beginning with those who are around us, those who are already in our environment. As I've often said, there are, certain, there are certainly gifts that God has given to each of his people, and that includes the relationships and the circumstances that we have. I, I may have spent a lot more time than you have on preaching the gospel, but you have a relationship with certain people that allows you to talk to them where I could not. God has put these people into your life where you can be that light and salt and testimony to the grace of God. At this point, it's helpful to ask who it is that Jesus is talking to. Now, the simple answer is, well, it's the disciples. It's Peter, it's James, it's Andrew. It's the people who knew and followed Jesus during his earthly ministry. But the disciples is actually a bigger group than this. It includes the likes of Cleopas that we met back on the road to Emmaus. It likely included all the Marys and the other women who followed Christ. In other words, yes, it is directly primar- directed primarily at the apostles that we normally think of who will be the elders of the first generation of the church. It's going to be the authors of the New Testament, but it's also the first generation of the church as a whole. That's who Jesus is speaking to. Now, Jesus' mom, Mary, is not going to be a missionary to Ethiopia or to India, but she is going to be a living witness to the gospel to all those who are around her. The women will not be put in eldership roles, as Paul would later explain in 1 Corinthians 14.34 and 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 12, but they would be crucial personal evangelists in the days of the early church. Paul is telling Timothy in his first letter that women aren't called to teach in a formal role in the church. And then in the second letter, he references how Timothy heard the gospel in Old Testament form first from his mother and from his grandmother. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 5, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwells first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. So the application for these verses, to take the gospel first to Jerusalem and then out to the world, is not just for pastors. It applies most directly to pastors and missionaries, but it is directed to Christ's church as a whole. The most striking part of our verse, though, is that Jesus is telling them that they are to take the gospel out to the nations, as the Old Testament has prophesied. Now, at this era of history, most of the people who have heard the God's word, the, who have heard the Old Testament as we think of it, they had read those verses through a lens of extreme prejudice against Gentiles. And they looked to verses like Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 through 3. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau have I hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the deserts. 
right? Referring to Edom, to the south of Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 14 and verse 2, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And we even see how Christ himself did not reach out to the Gentiles prior to the crucifixion. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 5. These 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans. But we do see Jesus predict, regarding his own crucifixion, in John chapter 12 verse 32, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. But coming back, did the Old Testament really predict the drawing in of the Gentiles? Isaiah chapter 2, verse 3. And many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Joel chapter 2, verse 32. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Isaiah 49, verse 6. God says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servants to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Psalm twenty-two, twenty-seven: 27. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. Psalm 98, verse 2. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sights of the nations. In Hosea chapter 1 and verse 10, Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. Right? And we read that in Hosea and we go, Okay, well, it's just talking about Israel and how they're going to be drawn back after the exile, after their punishment for their breaking of the covenants. But then we have divinely inspired interpretation of those verses in Romans chapter 9, verses 24 to 26. Even us whom he called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. Paul tells us those verses back in Hosea were actually about God calling in the rest of his elect and making them part of the true spiritual Israel. And now the disciples of Christ are called to be the fulfillment of those prophecies, to go out to proclaim the gospel to all the nations. Romans chapter 10, verses 14 to 17. How then will they call on him... In whom they have not believed. And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. 
But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And of course, the famous Great Commission. In Matthew 28, 18 to 20, Jesus came and said to them, All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. John Calvin writes, Christ bestows on them incredible honor. And joining them to publish to the whole world the message of eternal salvation. In this manner, he not only restores them to their former condition, but by the extent of this new favor, he utterly obliterates the recollection of their heinous crimes. Calvin's talking about how they all abandoned Christ at his crucifixion. And we saw last week, right, how surprising it is that Jesus actually comes back to the same disciples and doesn't just get new disciples. Because these are the people who abandoned him, who denied him in the case of Peter. Right? Returning to Calvin. But at the same time, as I have said, he stimulates them that they may not be slow and dilatory in reference to the faith of which they were appointed to be preachers. Charles Spurgeon said there was a divine necessity that Christ should die. And an equally imperative must he should that he should rise again from the dead. But there is an equally absolute necessity that Jesus should be preached to every creature under heaven. It was necessary that there be a Christ that God would take on flesh. It was necessary that he live the life that you and I should have lived. That he die the death that you and I deserve to die. But in order for that to be effectual, it has to be applied. Our, our redemption was planned before creation, outside of time. Our redemption was accomplished by Christ at the cross. But it isn't applied until sinners respond in repentance and faith to the gospel. And so it was necessary that the gospel be preached to every creature under heaven. And Christ tells his disciples, they will be witnesses of these things. This echoes back to Isaiah 43 and verse 10. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servants whom I have chosen that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. And this emphasizes the disciples' testimony to the deity of Christ, that he is that Lord, that God. Who precedes all. But it also calls to their witness to relationship of the Trinity. And it's important for their role in writing the course of the New Testaments. As we see in Hebrews 1, 1 through 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. 
And where do we get the words of Christ but through these witnesses? But the word that we trans and but sorry, they were witnesses of Christ. And there's many facets to that. <coughs> they were witnesses to his messages. They heard his sermons, his parables, his preaching of the kingdom of God, his call to repentance and faith. They were witnesses to the miracles that displayed his mercy and his grace to the sinners of the world, his love for the offscourings of society, the rejected and the denied. And they vindicated him as prophet and Messiah. They were witnesses to his innocence, his sinlessness. They were witnesses to his suffering and his death. They were witnesses to the empty tomb. And they were witnesses to his resurrection. But the word that we translate as witness from the original text is actually the origin of our term martyr. Many of these men would die for their testimony to the gospel. Their death would in and of itself be a testimony to the gospel. Of the 11, only John would be spared a violent death. And that was, by the way, not by any lack of trying on the behalf of the rest of the world. Their willingness, these men's willingness, even these women's willingness to suffer and die would be a witness to the grace that they experienced. We prove by our suffering that we have a gospel worth suffering for. Our ancestors in the faith have proven that they had a faith worth dying for. And God's done amazing things through all of that. I often reference Tertullian's famous quote about the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And wherever that blood was spilled, more of God's people sprang up. That proved and bore witness to the grace that they experienced the joy that their persecutors could not take away, their peace, which surpassed understanding, and their hope, which rested in heaven. Indeed, these men were witnesses. <clears throat> but Christ also tells them that this commission will not take immediate effect. They're first going to receive what the Father has promised the additional outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Now this is clearer in the longer record of Acts chapter 1 verses 4 through 5. Where Luke recounts the rest of what happened here in these events. And while staying with them. <clears throat> he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem. But to wait for the promise of the Father. Which he said you heard from me. For John baptized with water. But you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Not many days from now. Riken points out, this makes Luke chapter 24, verse 49, one of the most strongly Trinitarian verses in the entire Bible. It is spoken by God the Son with reference to both God the Father and God the Spirit. But this is a promise that goes back to the Old Testament as well. This isn't the first time 
that God's people have been told that there will be this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 to 27. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. Ezekiel 39:29. And I will not hide my face anymore from them when I pour out my spirit upon the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. Joel 2, 28 to 29. God promises, and it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. In Acts chapter 2, verses 14 to 21, Peter cites those verses from Joel as fulfilled in the events of Pentecost. We're going to come back to that in a moment. But Christ spoke to this earlier in his own ministry. John 14, 16 to 17. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And then in John chapter 16, verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And that verse is one that I preach to myself a lot. Because especially when I'm reading through the Old Testament, or I'm reading through the Gospels, and you see all the miraculous events that take place there, right? There's always a part of us that just goes, man, I want to be there. Why couldn't I be there? Why couldn't I be there at the parting of the Red Sea? Man, I'd be so faithful if I got to see that. If I got to see the axe head float, man, I'd never stop believing in Jesus. Man, if I could see the feeding of the five thousands, I'd never falter in my faith. And then you read the actual narratives of the rest of the saints and you either have to go, yeah, I probably would have done what Peter did. Or have the arrogance to go, nah, I, I wouldn't falter like they did. But we have to remember this verse where Christ tells us, look, you're going to be better off when I've gone into heaven. Because you're going to have the Holy Spirit in a unique way that preserves and guides and instructs and helps and comforts. You see, the disciples needed the Holy Spirit more than anything else. They needed this clear and visible outpouring of the Holy Spirit before they went out to fulfill that greatest of commissions. If they tried to go out and make disciples of all the nations, to preach the gospel of salvation to sinners, and face persecution in their own power, they would fail. Peter already served a test subject for that, right? Peter said, oh, Jesus, I'm never going to fail you. I'm never going to deny you. I'm, I'm ready to die for you. And then we find just at the end of that same night, Peter is denying Christ three times before the rooster crows. Why? Because Peter was trusting in his own strength. 
He didn't lift with his knees. He, lift, he didn't lift with his legs. He lifted with his back, right? He was relying on his own strength rather than the strength of the grace that God provides. You see, the disciples needed the guidance and the power of the Holy Spirit to be of any eternal effect. You might be able to summon up enough strength and courage and boldness to go out and attempt something amazing. But it's not going to accomplish anything that matters in eternity if God is not in it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5. Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. As I mentioned earlier, this was fulfilled shortly after at Pentecost. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And we read through Pentecost, right? And it's one more of those where we go, I wish I could just be there. I wish I could have seen that. But we need to understand that the Holy Spirit is not less present today than he was in the day of Pentecost. Like, it's not like the Holy Spirit is fading away over time. Now, yes, these gifts of Tongues and prophecies and miraculous healings are not here in the same way as we read in the book of Acts. When you read through the narratives of what took place in the first generation of the church, before they had the full New Testament written out for them, where they could go and reference Ephesians and Galatians and Philippians and Colossians, before they had access to those things, God sustained them in some extraordinary and beautiful ways. God gave them individuals within the church that were regular sources of prophecy, regular sources of healing, of tongues, of interpretation, and all of those things. And we don't have that in the same way today. God still heals people in extraordinary ways on specific occasions, but it's not like we've got Ted over here who just heals people. We don't speak in tongues as we did in that age because we don't have the need for it that they did in their era. But that doesn't mean the Holy Spirit is not here anymore. We know from church history those essentially disappeared around the end of the first century AD in conjunction with the full copying and distribution of the New Testament as we know it. But what matters most about the work of the Holy Spirit, we still have. God works when and where and how he pleases. And God is still speaking through his word written and preached. He is still granting saving repentance and faith to sinners. He continues to sanctify and to sustain his saints. You talk to the people that are in this congregation around you and find the stories about from these saints that have been following after Christ for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. I'd much rather have that than speaking in tongues. 
the saint that's still following after Christ, after dealing with death and sorrow and sickness and trial, and they are still going, whatever my God ordains is right? Why? Because God's grace is there, because the Holy Spirit is in them and guiding them and showing them that they have joy. Showing them that they have peace that, has, that surpasses understanding. Showing them that their hope resides in heaven beyond the reach of man, beyond the reach of government, beyond the reach of Satan himself. We have joy that cannot be stolen. So ask the Father for his promise. As the old Puritans would say, sue for the promise. Go searching for what God has promised because he is faithful for that Holy Spirit to draw you near, to show you your sins, to grant you true repentance. Ask for the Holy Spirit to give you faith in the risen Jesus. And this isn't something that we do once at the beginning it's something we do again and again for ourselves. We always have need for repentance. We always have need for faith as we journey towards heaven. Then pray for the Holy Spirit's work in those around you. Pray that he would tear out the weeds and the stones to prepare the soil of men's hearts for the gospel. Ask that God would prepare your heart to share that gospel. Ask that he would give you the words, the wisdom, the opportunity to speak of Christ to the eternal salvation of souls. Even if it's just to the extent of telling someone what God has done in you and inviting them to come and hear the words of life preached and proclaimed. Pray for the Holy Spirit's work in you and in those around you. But then we have to actually do it. To paraphrase a brother in Christ. If you're a bad evangelist. Then be a bad evangelist. But be an evangelist. Because the beauty of being an evangelist. As a Calvinist. Is knowing that God works through the worst of sinners. To accomplish his ends. I've often told people my justification. For believing that I can stand up here. And speak God's word and preach God's word as his servants comes from Balaam's donkey. If God can speak through the donkey, God can speak through me. I am here simply to present God's word. And that's all of our calling mutually. This is why we as a church support missionaries to go out to the ends of the earth. To Chile and to Argentina and to Africa and to the Middle East and to the Far East. And even the really dark pagan places like France. God is working to spread his gospel to the ends of the earth. And we're a part of that. This little congregation is part of a vast living body of Christ. In a broken and fallen world. You see we have to point people to Jesus. Being a Christian is like being a billboard. That shows a wildly unrealistic picture of a cheeseburger, right? And then gives you directions on how to get there. That's our job. We are to represent Christ. We are to be an image of Christ in a dark world. And then give directions to the actual Christ. 
As Charles Spurgeon once said, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. If they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees. Let no one go there unwarned and unprayed for. Let's come before the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you and we praise you for your grace, your mercy, your love, and your providence. Lord, we ask for your labor in our hearts and in our minds. Lord, that you would bless even the offering that was taken up this morning to your glory. That it would, that those, those finances that are being sent out from this church to our missionaries would glorify you, would honor you. And Lord, that you would use them to the end of the salvation of sinners. And Lord, we raise up to you our missionaries that are laboring today around the world. We ask that you would indeed use them in mighty and in powerful ways. That you would attend their preaching to the salvation of sinners. Lord, we ask that you would glorify your name in growing your church abroad, but also here. Lord, that it would be effectual in the hearts of all who have heard it this morning. To the sanctification of your saints and to the salvation of sinners. Glorify your name, Lord, in all these things. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.